1: Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. Follow Jelly Roll Morton, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz, in this ambitious musical masterpiece that's sure to blow the roof off the theater. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets at PasadenaPlayhouse.org.
2: It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3 on air and live streaming on Instagram at LAist Official. Austin Cross with you this Friday, as always. Thanks so much for hanging out this morning. Coming up, we're going to do some Hearing Aid 101. You know, about 15% of American adults have some trouble hearing, and that number jumps to 25% for folks over 65, 50% for those 75 and older. We all want to live a long, healthy life, which means sooner or later we might end up there if we are not there already. But it can be hard to know what kind of hearing aid to choose. And even if you're not near any of those ages, even if your hearing is fine right now, you might have a loved one that should maybe consider it. Maybe you've had trouble convincing them uh, to get one or maybe even to use the one that they have. We're going to talk about all of that. Of course, we'll want to hear from you as well. But we start this hour with COVID and a new study that's finally putting some numbers to what researchers have suspected for a very long time. And that's that long COVID may lead to cognitive decline, especially when it comes to remembering, reasoning, planning. Let's talk about it with Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, Director of Infectious Disease and Prevention at Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. Dr. Schreiner, so good to have you back.
3: Nice to
2: be back, Austin. And, of course, because the doctor is in, if you have any questions related to COVID, we have a line open for you at 866-893-5722. Again, that's 866-893-5722 if you have a COVID-related question for the doctor. There's also at comments at laist.com. Just be sure to use your name and location so we can give you that shout-out. Well, Dr. Schreiner, this was a study out of England. They tested about 113,000 people. Can you break down some of what they found for us?
3: Yeah, not surprising findings, uh, Austin. Uh, we know that, um, we certainly know that long COVID is a real thing, and we know that neurocognitive issues are one of the predominant features. What this was, was a an online assessment of um, sort of uh, neurocognitive abilities in individuals, people that had, there was one group that had uh, persistent symptoms after 12 weeks, another that um, had resolution of symptoms, and another that had uh, all the signs and symptoms of long COVID after several months. And what it showed, not surprisingly, is that people that have long COVID, uh, that there was a measurable decline, although it was very, very tiny in intellectual capabilities as measured by sort of some IQ parameters. Those that had uh, not very symptomatic COVID and recovered seemed to have, did have a little tiny bit of abnormalities, but not significant from those that had never had COVID. Um, And the the bad news was that this certainly does cause a measurable, uh, can cause a measurable decline in intellectual um, measurements. But that, over a long period of time, uh, this may uh, eventually return to normal. The interesting thing was that it seemed to be more predominant in those individuals that had, had either serious illness, not surprisingly, mm. or those individuals who had been infected with the very first variant of of covid the b one one seven. So now that we have a lot of vaccinations and and natural immunity in the community, we hope that maybe some of these findings will not be as significant.
2: Did this uh, study actually address uh, people or, or make a difference, uh, point out a distinction between people who had had a vaccine versus people who had not?
3: Well, it didn't specific, It did specifically look at some of that, but it's hard to measure because the study was done recently. So mm. the vast majority of people have either been vaccinated or have been exposed to COVID. Uh, so it's pretty hard to measure that in terms of those that didn't have any kind of immunologic uh, protection on board. But there is clear evidence that vaccination and/or natural infection does provide um, some pre- provide some uh, uh, prevention of the developing long COVID.
2: Talking right now with Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, Def- director of Infectious Disease and Prevention at Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. We're talking about a study out of England that's looking at cognitive decline connected to long COVID. If you have any sort of COVID question for the doctor, though, we do have a line open for you at 866-893-5722. I'll say it slowly, too, because I'm terrible at remembering numbers. 866-893-5722. There's also AT comments at LAist.com. Digging into these numbers, doctor, though, uh, people with persistent post-COVID symptoms, they scored about six IQ points lower than people who'd never been infected with COVID, but then people who had had an infection, uh, not experiencing symptoms, though, uh, they still uh, were down by about three IQ points. I'm wondering how significant this actually is, whether six to three IQ points uh, really tells us a lot about decline, or is this maybe something that could... In your day-to-day life, I'd say, maybe would this look like forgetting your your phone at home when you leave the house or something like that, maybe once a week? I don't, I'm It's trying to think of how we can contextualize it and understand it.
3: Well, and I think you're absolutely right. This is difficult stuff to measure. Um, and, you know, it's early days as well. We do know that this virus likes to go to the part of the brain called the neocortex, which is it starts in the nose and moves into uh, the frontal temporal parts of the brain. And that's where a lot of executive... Uh, processing goes on in the brain. So things like um, uh, being able to remember numbers, you just mentioned that actually yourself, Uh, or uh, remembering dates or some day-to-day functions. For people that have long COVID, that's a very significant uh, problem. For individuals who don't have any signs of long COVID, um, is that because they had COVID at some point or is that just because they're forgetting, Mm. they're not very good with numbers and remembering things? So it's going to be a hard thing to measure this study was a large study. The bias is, is that it was uh, subjective. It was online. Um, and so there are some parts of it that we have to take with a grain of salt. But I think it does support our our concern that this is a neurotropic virus and then it can cause uh, longstanding, hopefully not permanent, but longstanding abnormalities in executive thinking. I mean, it's
2: just so hard because it's one of those things where, like you said, uh A person might be having the symptoms, but it's very hard to actually know if it's, you know, just normal aging, if they just became forgetful. I mean, I personally have had COVID before, and I also feel like there's an uptick in me, you know, forgetting my wallet at home now over the past year. And it's like, well, is it something related or is it just me being forgetful? It's very hard to know in this uh, sort of uh, situation Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about some new guidance that came out of the CDC just about the day before yesterday. It's connected to the COVID vaccine. They now say that Americans 65 and older should get another dose of the updated vaccine. That's the one that came out in September. uh, If it's been at least four months since their last shot, what do you make of this recommendation?
3: Well, it's frustrating. Uh, It's certainly there are data to support it because we know that antibodies to the virus really kind of begin to dribble down after about three to four months. And so in high risk individuals, uh, people who are older than 65 or immunocompromised, uh, they can uh, if they don't have enough antibodies on board, they can still get COVID and get quite sick with it. That being said, um, you know, it's, it's getting kind of impractical to every six months having to get another vaccine. And we really, mm. really need to have a long lasting vaccine or a vaccine that can prevent infection. Um, but if you are a particularly high risk individual, you have an underlying cancer or you're on immunosuppressive drugs, uh, then it probably is prudent to think about getting another vaccine as we uh, enter the summer. We kind of know the rhythm of, of COVID now. It certainly happens uh, after gatherings. So after the 4th of July, Memorial Day, uh, we start seeing an uptick that kind of peaks usually in August. And then, of course, we have the dreaded fall and uh, winter that comes after the holidays. We're just now coming out of the big surge that we had over this last holiday. And I'm happy to report at this very moment, Huntington Hospital does not have any COVID patients, which is great. But, wow. um, uh But... We know it'll happen again. And so the vaccines do help people stay out of the hospital and prevent serious illness. And so it might be prudent in the next few months to think about getting yet another vaccine to protect you through the summer.
2: You said a lot there that I want to circle back to, but I also understand there was some debate on the advisory panel at the CDC over how they would roll this out, whether the language is uh, people 65 and older may get one or should get one they ultimately arrived at should but in that area of uncertainty even among the experts of whether or not this should be a should situation or you can if you want to sort of situation is that more based off of the medical science or just an understanding of humans and how many times a lot of us have gotten poked in the arm at this point
3: i think it's a little bit of both austin um uh you know i don't really want to have to get yet another shot but um but the science right now seems to support that that uh up-to-date vaccination really does protect you quite well and um uh and prevents serious illness we know that older people and immunocompromised people don't respond very well to the vaccines um you know the vaccines are very very safe but i certainly understand the fatigue that everybody has and it's, it's just a pain in the arm to have to go and get it all the time but That's where we are right now. And I think that they're kind of hedging because I think they do feel that there's some sort of uh, ennui in the public about uh, understanding that you have to get yet another vaccine.
2: A real pain in the arm. Oh, I love that. Talking right now with Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, Director of Infectious Disease and Prevention at Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. If you have a question for the doctor, we have a line, 866-893-5722. Uh, You can also go to laist.com slash Airtalk now and fill out the submission form. It's really cool. It's really sleek, really easy way to get your thoughts in or get your questions in. That's laist.com slash Airtalk. Or if you want to be old school on this Friday, 866-893-5722. Dr. Schreiner, switching away from COVID a little bit, this is a conversation that we've been having uh, within the Airtalk team. And It's somewhat anecdotal. It's one of those conversations that goes, it feels like everyone's getting sick. It feels like, you know, we all have a friend or a family member who's gotten sick right now. Um, Not sure, though, if it's just in our heads or if it's the season that we're in. But based off of what you know, based off of what you see, and I know this is a very unscientific question, but um, how are our immune systems doing these days
3: well i I think it's real uh, austin i think that um we know we it's i don't think it's there's nothing there are statistics that show it we certainly had a very brisk season of influenza and rsv and a lot of other upper, upper respiratory infections i think this is kind of a post and i don't want to say post pandemic because unfortunately we're not really out of the pandemic but at least the worst part of the pandemic when we were Uh, you know, better maskers and we stayed home and there wasn't as much mixing. Now we're challenging our immune system and our immune system sort of forgot about some of those pathogens that are out there. So I'm hoping that over the next few months and years that, you know, we'll restore kind of the memory that we have for preventing these kind of diseases And we won't have as brisk seasons, but it can happen anyway, regardless if it happened before COVID with, you know, different periods where we had influenza or RSV circulating at high levels. But I think a lot of this is kind of a function of the lack of community protection from those viruses because of what we've been through for the last few years.
2: Dr. Schreiner, Scott emailed us and said, for those of us who have never had COVID, do we need to continue uh, to get vaccines? I've had four shots already. Uh, What do you think, doctor?
3: I think that's maybe one of the reasons why you've never had COVID. Um, People Mm. that stay up on their vaccines often are very careful. I've never had COVID, believe it or not. Uh, And um, it could happen and it happens to most people and we know how to deal with it. We have very good medications to treat it now, Uh, but vaccines prevent disease. And they, I think, and people that that do that, I think are interested in protecting themselves. This is, we still know so little about this virus that if whatever you can do to protect yourself is prudent. Mm -hmm.
2: I'm coming back to something you said earlier, Dr. Schreiner. You said we're not out of the pandemic yet. I want to point out some numbers from the CDC that say there are still more than 20,000 hospitalizations and 2,000 deaths each week due to coronavirus. Um, I'm wondering how that compares to other uh, viruses in terms of death, but also what the end of the pandemic actually looks like in your view
3: well yes and that's a very important statistic is that each one of those two thousand people is a person and somebody who is loved or loves someone else and so that's a huge loss and i think that if that happened outside of the context of the pandemic that we're in it would be a pandemic that would be a very alarming statistic about an infectious disease and so we have a lot of work to do i think that the pandemic will end when we have a pan coronavirus vaccine when we have a vaccine that's effective in preventing infection, uh, and when we have a better understanding of uh, how we can prevent the next pandemic, because there could be another one at any time. Just because we have this one going on doesn't mean we couldn't have an influenza shift that would cause a pandemic. So I think it's really a reminder of how vulnerable we are as a species and what we need to do to protect ourselves.
2: Uh, Any sense of this pan uh, vaccine of, of anybody who's currently working on that or the progress that's been made on that?
3: It is being worked on. Uh, The National Institutes of Health are doing some big studies and uh, understanding how we could create something that would cover many different types of uh, coronaviruses, especially SARS-CoV-2 variants, uh, is really, there's a priority. So there's been some substantial amount of funding uh, being spent on that kind of research right now.
2: It is always such a pleasure and an honor to have with us Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, Director of Infectious Disease and Prevention at Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. Doctor, thank you so much for making the time. It's always my pleasure, Austin. Thank you. Ah, So wonderful. I just love that Airtalk can provide this service throughout the pandemic. If you caught Larry throughout the whole pandemic, just so valuable to get that information out there. And thank you for your questions as well. I'm Austin Cross. This is Airtalk on a Friday. When we come back, we're going to check out Apple. Specifically now that Apple mentioned, (laughs) told their staff internally this past week that they're axing their EV efforts they've been at it for a while spent a whole lot of money on it now it is done so we're going to hear why but also just kind of look at what the future is for apple at this point which you know was known for these huge innovations these huge changes the iphone obviously the apple watch but what's next now that almost everybody has a smartphone we're going to talk about that 60 seconds stick around ear talk on a friday also live streaming on instagram la's official It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3 and live streaming on Instagram at LAist Official. that's L-A-I-S-T Official, where you can also join the conversation. Austin Cross with you on this Friday, as always. In about 15 minutes, we are going to do a Hearing Aids 101 conversation. And if you don't need one yet, great, wonderful. But if you plan to live a long and healthy life, there may come a day when you will need one or maybe somebody that you love needs one, but it's hard to choose the right ones. Obviously, they're pretty expensive and just the whole culture around them, a lot of people just don't want to wear them because of how it makes them look or makes them feel. We're going to talk about all of that, and of course, we're going to want to hear from you about that too, your experiences, what's worked, what hasn't, your questions. But first, let's talk about Apple because let's face it, their stock is probably in most of our retirement funds in some way or another. And for a decade, they've been working on an electric car in hopes of getting on a growing market, diversifying their offerings. But now Apple EV, the program, is getting the axe. Boom. Company leadership broke the news to staff this week. About 2,000 employees worked on that project. Not clear what the future holds for them. But look, Apple is sitting on a pile of cash. Latest count was a little over $160 billion with a B. So not the worst position in which to be. But not everything is great. iPhones have saturated the market and people aren't upgrading as much as they used to. So this is actually a funny question. Do you even know which iPhone model we're at at this point? Truly, I do not. So where does Apple go from here? Joining us with the latest, William Antonelli, freelance tech reporter with the news. William, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So let's rewind a little bit about a decade to when Apple unveiled this EV plan. Um, What were they envisioning with this car project? What was it intended to be?
5: Well, you have to realize that a decade ago, the EV industry... Was in a much different place than it was now. Um, Tesla was still very much was very fledgling compared to where they are now. Um, the entire electric, entirely electric car industry was really just getting started. Hybrids were really more the norm. Um, so I think that Apple had the idea. You know, we've innovated on the smartphone. We've innovated on the computer. There are computers and cars. Why not we? Why don't we go that way? Um, but unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on which way you look at it, from an Apple a shareholder perspective. Uh, it seemed to be a little bit harder than they expected. Um, it's a little bit harder to revolutionize the idea of driving a car than it is an iPhone. Uh, you know, the iPhone really revolutionized the way we use smartphones, uh, the iPad tablets, the Apple Watch smartwatches. But there aren't that many ways you can put the Apple spin on sitting behind a wheel and using your gas pedals, that we not without staying road legal. Uh, so, right. so I think that was the big thing that Apple really ran into.
2: I mean, so much has happened in the past decade. Tesla, of course, uh, grew to take a large market share, but uh, they also ran into a lot of trouble with this self-driving, so-called self-driving feature that really, in reality, was not that, but there were some notable uh, deaths in uh, the case of that self-driving feature. Uh, Maybe sometimes people weren't using it the right way, but it got people's heads around, especially the general public around. uh, I think it went as an idea from, uh, seems like, a cool idea, a car that's going to, you know, as they wanted it to be, drive itself and be voice guided with the navigation. But to actually see it in practice, I think it put a lot of red flags uh, in front of us here. Uh, let me ask you, they hired a pretty robust team. Do you know how that project was progressing and how far they got in the technology they wanted to roll out? I know that
5: certainly they were testing their self-driving technology on public roads. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the car that they were using, it was essentially a standard Lexus SUV with some cameras and electrical tape on it. Uh, And they were testing it, it was on public roads, Um, and there there are a number of uh, cases throughout uh, the last few years of people seeing it on the roads. So certainly they were relatively deep into the project, they probably hadn't gotten to a full car model yet. And uh, there were some rumors that they had partnered with different car companies like Hyundai to actually come up with a a prototype. Um, But unfortunately, over the last few years, really all the news that we've been hearing mostly about uh, the Apple car project was really just, okay, they've cut more people from the team. Oh, no, they've cut more people from the team. Um, So things did not seem like they were going super well over the last few years.
2: I mean there's there's so many headwinds. I know that uh the company Fisker Karma, which people might have heard of, they cut 15% of their staff. Faraday Future, another one, uh stock is down 72% this year. Uh Tesla has kind of told people essentially, you know, don't don't expect the same kind of miracles that we've seen in recent years uh for a bit. Uh, even Rivian, also in that space, ran into a lot of uh, issues with uh, getting their production up to speed. So it's it's obviously a lot more difficult uh, done than said. Uh, I want to bring into the conversation right now Saikot Chaudhry. He's a teaching professor of innovation strategy and engineering. Uh, he's a professor at UC Berkeley. Uh, professor Chaudhry, thank you so much for coming out today.
6: It's great to be here. Thank you.
2: Uh, take me inside a big company like Apple and the the development process when it comes to saying, you know what, EVs are where we want to go. It could cost billions of dollars in R&D, but the payoff could be worth it. Can you maybe talk about some of the considerations, projections that a company makes when they're going to spend that kind of coin uh, looking toward the future, a future that most of us aren't really thinking about yet?
6: Absolutely. I mean, we think of innovation in two ways, right? One is the more disruptive, revolutionary innovation, and then there's the more incremental innovation. So when you were talking earlier about what version are we on with the iPhone, that's more incremental. And then the radical stuff is really, you know, like open AI coming up with chat GPT or the internet coming about, right? And so right. for a company like Apple, honestly, they're sitting on a lot of cash and they have the ability to do more of the radical innovation and what we call spend money on Exploration versus exploitation, which is making money on the existing product and services. So that plays a role. Um, Do they have the capabilities in place, right? I mean, that's important. So in the EV case, were they equipped to really build a car? And I think Apple's more of a software company than a hardware company, if you think about it that way. And then what's the competitive market like, right? I mean, is it worth it for us to get into it? Finally, of course, the um, financials. How much money are we going to make? I think for Apple, it's actually a smart decision because they focus on the software. They've got CarPlay, so they're involved in the auto industry and making money in areas that they understand and ones with higher margins.
2: I mean, Saikot, we've talked about this money that they're sitting on, and it was to the tune of $160 billion or so. I was just wondering why they just didn't buy one of the companies that's already out there that's already got something established, so then they can do the tech in on, on that side. Is acquisition ever a much more logical approach than just trying to develop it from whole cloth in house?
6: Absolutely. In fact, um, you know, you've touched upon an area that's close to my heart. My research stream uh, for the last twenty years has oh. been on tech MA. and um, A. So uh, I very much so. You have to think about it this way. You know, um, internal development you have control and you're able to then create the entire ecosystem more easily yourself but of course it's slow Um, acquisitions are useful though if you're behind or if you want to stay ahead of the market because you have um, time to market gains of course you have to pay a premium in order to get that but the bigger factor is do i know what i should bet on because there's so much uncertainty in a market if you think about autonomous cars for instance and which platform's going to dominate, we're still not sure about that. I mean, yes, you know, maybe Tesla, but maybe the traditional manufacturers are getting there now and they're able to be more successful, who knows? So in order to buy something, I have to pay a premium, I have to deal with the problems of integration. So before I jump into that, I need to make sure that it's the right bet um, and I have the capabilities to do it too.
2: I mean, one thing I'll point out is good acquisition. Google purchasing YouTube for $1.65 billion. Wildly successful acquisition there. Uh, Saved a lot of time. Just buy the thing. Uh, Let me come back to William Antonelli, freelance tech reporter. Uh, I want to look at what Apple has been trying recently in other areas because I know they were trying to get into the health space by way of the Apple Watch. Um, Health data, allowing people to track uh, their their heartbeats, their sleep habits. Um, what have we seen as far as where Apple has started to look now toward development and innovation?
5: In my eyes over the last few years, the two spaces that Apple has been putting a lot, a lot of focus on is one, health. Uh, like you said, of course, recently they've run into a little bit of a snag with the most recent Apple Watch having to be recalled because right. of the, its blood pressure uh, technology apparently infringed on a patent. But health is one thing that they're uh, they're investing in. Um, and the other actually I that's interesting and I don't think a lot of people pay attention to is privacy and cybersecurity. Uh, they have put a lot of work over the last few years and sometimes with the uh, lawsuits involved um, about trying to make sure that the Apple ecosystem is as secure as possible. Um, this has caused some issues on like, for example, uh, just recently, um, a group of companies, including Spotify and Epic Games, released a statement um, saying that uh, Apple's solution to the uh, the closed ecosystem issue in Europe um, there have been some there's been some legislation saying that Apple needs to allow third-party app stores onto its phones in order to comply with legislation. Um, these companies, like Spotify and Epic Games, are saying, "Well, you know, Apple they're not playing fair." Um, and Apple's response has been, "Well, hey, we're just trying to keep our ecosystem secure. We're trying to keep our users safe." Um, So that's been another area that they've been putting a lot of attention or a lot of focus into.
2: Talking right now with William Antonelli, freelance tech reporter. Let's go back to uh, Professor Saikot Chaudhry, teaching professor of innovation strategy and engineering at UC Berkeley. So I guess it's time to play the game. What is Tim Cook thinking right now Um, since the iPhone market? you know, A lot of people have smartphones already. There's obviously a lot of competition in emerging markets. iPhones are the more expensive option in a lot of developing nations. So they just might not expect to enter the market quite the same way that they've done in uh, Europe and in the U.S. But if you were uh, Tim Cook, is AI the direction that you'd go right now? What's the, what's the way that Apple would maximize both its investment in the R&D and maybe see the most return on investment at this time?
6: Absolutely. I mean, but AI is a general purpose technology. So the real interesting thing is, um, where can I use it? Even in this car venture, Apple got to experiment with so many AI technologies in the quest to produce something for autonomous, right? So AI can be used for so many things. You know, William mentioned the health piece of it, right? Um, But there are also so many other applications, even in the auto space. um, Clearly, they want a piece of that. The other aspects are, if you look at it, AI will revolutionize their phones and how we interact with input devices. Apple was the really the player that changed how we input information into the phone. We moved from keyboards to touching the screen. So now you can imagine how we can go to the next level where we may not even need to touch something. There's the whole Apple TV and entertainment space and so many things we can do. There's the creative space in which uh, Apple can really play, productivity software and get back to those roots as well. So many different exciting areas, but undoubtedly AI has been something that Apple has got to play with and experiment with all these years in their R&D, and they will be looking for more and more applications where they can build that in. Siri, if you remember, was one of the first as well um, in terms of allowing us voice inputs into the the phone.
2: Right, I mean, I remember how new all of that technology felt. Uh, even as a person who came to iPhones very late, I had a BlackBerry up until like 2013. <laughs> it was a really long time. Uh, I was just blown away by what you could do. And I remember when that was the iPhone was first announced years before that, I believe 07. I want to say, um, but but I'm also kind of wondering, Professor, if this is personal for Tim Cook because. There is a little bit of a perception that Apple has lost some of its ability to innovate because, yeah, we've seen the Apple Watch, the HomePod. HomePod, who remembers that? That was a little bit of a flop. The Vision Pro, which we talked about on this show, which is in the early stages, still $3,500. But as far as technology that wows us and that becomes the standard going forward, do you think it's going to be less about the hardware and more about what they're doing on the back end with the software or could it still be a hardware thing? Is there still maybe a, a ring or a, a digital you know, pair of eyeglasses that, that could change all of our lives?
6: So, first of all, I agree with you that Tim Cook is under pressure, and this question had come when he took over the reins, you know, after Steve Jobs passed away as well. Big shoes. You know, Steve Jobs, yeah, had had cultivated this image of Apple creates new categories. It's not just about new revolutionary products that leapfrog the others. It's about let's create new sets of devices, so the whole I-series of you know, the iPod, if you remember that, the uh, iPhone and the iPad was really about all of that. And so clearly Apple has not been able to come up with a new category in quite some time and product innovation that's so radical. At the same time, they're really big. It's hard to keep that going. I mean, even Steve Jobs, the late Steve Jobs himself at one point floundered a little bit and struggled a little bit um, at, uh, at Apple, right? So yes, um, I think it's there. Now, in terms of your question on where they're going, I do think that since Apple's core competence has been around design and around hardware and devices, I can't imagine that they will purely turn their attention to just the software. Uh, The question becomes, where will they play? I mean, you can imagine the next generation of phones or input devices, you know, is there. But the other piece that you're alluding to, which I think is there, we think about B2C often as being, what we visually observe as the new innovative things, but think about transforming the supply chain, for example, or creating Mm. smart cities. Those are things that require all kinds of new devices and technology to be able to manage the energy, to be able to manage traffic flows, to be able to optimize demand and inventory. These are all areas that Apple can play in and who knows, maybe they wanna get into the automation side on the factory floor as well and warehousing because that's undergoing a revolution as well.
2: Wow, fascinating stuff. The future, I tell you. That's Sycott Shodry, Professor of Innovation, Strategy, and Engineering at UC Berkeley. We also heard from William Antonelli, freelance tech reporter. My thanks to you both for coming on. This is Air Talk on a Friday. I'm Austin Cross. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today. When we come back in 90 seconds, we are going to talk hearing aids. Maybe not something that you need right now. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't even know it. Maybe not something that you need right now, though, but it might be something that you'll need in the future. Maybe you're having this conversation with a loved one right now. Maybe a loved one has it and they hate it. We're going to talk about all of that coming up. Stick around on AirTalk. It's Air talk here on LAist 89.3 and on the LAist app and also live streaming on Instagram at LAist official. I should tell you right now, we are watching Jackie and Shadow, the Eagles in Big Bear. They are on the nest and we're on Pip Watch. I think they're called pips, like a little beak comes out of the egg. And it shows us that we're getting some new eaglets. I think they have about three eggs in that nest, huge nest, by the way. But if you want to watch that live stream, there is a cam on our website, laist.com. Would recommend, if you just want something comforting and cozy, just watch some eagles hang out in their home. It's so nice. Let's talk right now about hearing aids because hearing loss affects a whole lot of us as we age of folks over the age of 60, about half are affected. But when it comes to getting help, not a lot of people are seeking out hearing aids. So for this last part of the show, we want to dig into all things hearing aids with a couple of experts. So Let's start off with Nicholas Reed. He's an assistant professor of epidemiology and audiology at Johns Hopkins University. Nicholas, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
2: Well, let's contextualize this for folks. How prevalent is hearing loss in this country?
1: Yeah. Like you said, um, once we get over the age of 60, about half of us all uh, have hearing loss. Uh, once we get over the age of 70, about two thirds of us have hearing loss. And once we get to about the age of 85, 90, uh, hearing loss is pretty ubiquitous at that point, And everybody has a
2: clinically significant hearing loss. Now, compared to those numbers of the people who have hearing loss, how many of those people would you say are actually using some sort of hearing aid device?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, estimates vary. If you look across sort of the entire adult population in the United States, less than or around 20% of those who have hearing loss actually own and use a hearing aid.
2: 20 but what's that you said less than 20 percent less than
1: 20 yeah oh yeah yeah gosh. uh you know specific you know specific data it, it's it's a little bit disturbing to say this number but it's like 16.4 percent, if oh we get really specific gosh. um i will say though once we get over to the age of sort of 70 you know that number rises nationally representative data tells us it's more like 30 percent of those with hearing loss own and use hearing aids and and one sort of caveat here is always you know not all hearing loss technically needs a hearing aid right away right more mild forms of hearing loss early early slight hearing loss for example with age you, know, you don't always need a hearing aid so um, you know that that's not to say that those numbers are okay they're not okay but you know we do we do expect that with increasing severity or degree of hearing loss you, you're more likely to actually need hearing aids
2: right i feel like in some ways that mirrors how humans are about their health uh way anyway, where, you know, if you notice that certain fonts are getting harder to read, you just get a bigger <laughs> font, and then maybe you eventually go to the eye doctor or something like that. You know, you just kind of bump along with this thing that's changing slowly, turn up the volume a little bit more. Um, but talk to me about what happens now when you have hearing loss, but you're not really doing anything about it. Is there a cognitive decline uh, aspect to this?
1: Yeah, yeah, you're alluding to a lot of research. Uh, our our team has done a lot of work on this. Um, I think it's caught fire, and many teams around the world have done this work too now. And what we've sort of shown is um, the area that gets the most sort of you know uh, attention is hearing loss does have an independent association with cognitive decline and risk of older adults. Um, however, we also have a lot of more broad data showing hearing losses associated with physical activity. It's associated with, you know, social isolation and loneliness and uh, even things like healthcare utilization where, you know, at first glance that might not make as much sense to people. But if you, if you really think about it, you know, healthcare settings are these communication heavy uh, moments in our lives where the majority of the information being presented to us is jargon that we don't understand and being able to access and hear that information can be vital. Um, So just understanding your treatment and your your treatment options and whether you comply with them can be affected by having hearing loss.
2: So I want to bring into the conversation now Marquita Merkison, uh, Associate Director of Audiology Practices with the American Speech Language Hearing Association. Uh, Marquita, thank you so much for being with us.
7: Hello, and thank you for having me.
2: So I know that People might feel a little bit of hesitation, especially when they're at this crossroads where they think that they might need a hearing aid. There's a lot of uh, kind of cultural reasons almost. Sometimes I've heard that people uh, don't want to uh, seem old or they're afraid of how it's going to make them look. Have you heard a a lot of narratives from people who have maybe been holdouts when it comes to getting the hearing aid that they actually need?
7: I absolutely have heard a, a lot of holdouts, unfortunately, and hopefully we are working towards changing those um, misconceptions about getting older and losing your hearing. Your hearing sensitivity is not something that is okay to lose. It's oh. okay to prioritize your hearing just as you would want to make sure that you get your eyes tested when you notice that you're not seeing as well. Um, it's not a crime to have more birthdays. You know, it's something that should be celebrated. Yeah. And if your hearing changes with time, you still have a lot of listening to do. Um, so I would really hope that everyone listening uh, can just think of your hearing health care as a part of your regular health care, not something to think about where you can put it off or I'm not there yet or you want to wait till it gets really bad and think about, well, what does that actually mean? You have a lot of listening to do. And, you know, your hearing, if you use spoken language, your hearing connects you, not just to your environment, to other people as well. So, you know, you want to protect your hearing. You want to investigate when you notice changes in your hearing, so you can keep on participating in life. And particularly when we think about our senior citizens, it's a part of a healthy aging process. Um, so I personally, plan on being in everyone's business for many years, and I'm going to need my hearing
2: to do so. (laughs) Yes. I'm talking right now with Marquita Merkison, Associate Director of Audiology Practices with the American Speech Language Hearing Association. For folks listening in, I would love to hear your experiences with hearing aids. uh, If you've needed one, how you knew that it was time, how maybe you were convinced if you uh, were holding out, or if you have a loved one Uh, Who needed one? Who still needs one? Maybe you don't know how to start to have that conversation with them. 866 893 5722 if you would like to share your experience with hearing aids. We're going to talk a lot more about them, especially their costs, how they work when we come back in just about 60 seconds. But 866 893 5722 is our number. You can also go to our fancy new page, slash AirTalk. You can fill out the submission form there if you'd like to share your experience. This is AirTalk on a Friday. I'm Austin Cross. We are doing Hearing Aid 101 because how else would you hear us? Back in 60 seconds. It's AirTalk here on LAist 89.3 and live streaming on Instagram at LAistOfficial. We are doing Hearing Aid 101, which you need to know, because if you do not yet have a hearing aid, hearing device, if you live long enough, you probably will need one. But if you'd like to share your experience with hearing aid, hearing devices, whether it's you, a family member, maybe it was an easy sell and they said, yeah, sign me up. Maybe it was hard. Maybe you had to navigate a very expensive Marketplace. eight six six eight nine three five seven two two 893 5722 is our number. There's also alias.com/slash airtalk. Sam and Los Files wrote in via our submission forum and he said, I noticed my hearing loss in my 30s, but I didn't get a hearing test until 40. So Sam waited 10 years to get one. Now he's listing out, and I really appreciate Sam, all of our listeners who contribute. Thank you, Sam. He listed out his biggest challenges. So here we're going to go through them. Then we're going to talk to the expert about them. Stigma. We don't have the same attitude on impaired vision. There's access, uh, like movie theaters don't have many options for captions. And then he says cost. He had to pay over $2,000 for testing and just one hearing aid, no insurance plan that he had available to him was offering any coverage on that. Nicholas Reed, do these sound like very common uh, roadblocks to people uh, who are looking for hearing aids, hearing devices?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, these are these are the common things that we hear. Um, hearing aids are expensive. Uh, you know, according to the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, hearing aids on average are about $4,700 for a pair. Um, and that does include the professional services that come with them that are sort of necessary to make them work well, but that's still a pretty hefty entry point. Um, and I, I also think it's it's interesting to mention uh, the accessibility side because there's, you know, there's accessibility to the care, but there's also sort of this sort of broader society acceptance of just accessibility of of hearing uh, difficulty, right? Mm. And The captioning is a is a great way to think about it. We've We've often sort of forgotten about that side of things and made it something that is more sort of society level accepted. And that may affect that first point that your listener made, that stigma. Um, you know, the stigma, a lot of us will attribute it to this concept of rooted in, you know, aging. And right, it represents our age, and we don't want to be associated with with being older. But also historically, unfortunately, whereas vision was associated with scholars, you lose your vision from reading a lot, uh, and then you get glasses because you, you know, are in the clergy or you're a politician reading – hearing loss, unfortunately, did not have that sort of, you know, same association over time. And right. instead, the stigma was very much towards intellectual and developmental disabilities. And um, I think that is hard to overcome. I like to think as a society that we've overcome a lot of that, but I, I don't know. Um, the, the other thing about stigma that I always say, too, is, you, you know, as Americans, maybe it's also something we we like to use as an excuse sometimes. Uh, if the entry fee is two to $5,000 you know, it's, it's kind of easy to say, well, I, I don't want to look old, right? Um, so it, it's, it's really hard on the research side for us to get to the stigma, but we do hear that statement a lot.
2: That's Nicholas Reed right now, uh, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and Audiology at Johns Hopkins University. Harriet is calling us from Cyprus. And Harriet, you just got hearing aids for the first time. Tell us about your experience.
7: Well, um, they certainly helped me a lot. As I said earlier, I uh, had thought my dishwasher was always so, so quiet. And then when I got hearing aids, I realized that, oh, no, it's not quiet at all. Wow. And I could hear. And so I hear so much better, especially the TV. I didn't realize that I had to turn it up so high. Now I can just turn it down, and it doesn't blast everybody out of the house. So, uh yeah, it's quite, uh, quite a difference. But the thing is, I am also vain. So mm. I did not want a hearing aid that you could see in my ears. So I am going to my third tear right now that goes down inside the ear that you really cannot
8: see.
2: That's Harriet in Cyprus. Harriet, thank you so much for sharing your experience. Um, Brian is calling us from Redondo Beach. Brian, tell us a little bit about your experience with your mother.
8: Great conversation. Thanks for talking about this. Um, My mom is not vain. She's a beautiful person, loves to chat with people, but she has profound hearing loss at age 76. Hmm. And so she's gone through a couple of cycles of um, hearing aids, and they work okay until the batteries go dead. Or they slipped off the charger or something. So we created an auxiliary system I'd love your listeners to know about. Um, I went on Amazon. I purchased Bluetooth headphones for about $35. Purchased a Bluetooth transmitter, $25. Purchased a little microphone set that you might use for video production. That's what I do for a profession, so I'm familiar. But it's for about $125. It includes two microphones. And a receiver. So you plug the receiver into the transmitter, the transmitter goes to the wireless headphones. I've read that. My mom puts puts her headphones on her head, and she goes, oh, thank you. I can hear. And (laughs) what's great about it is the connection she makes with the doctors when she goes to the doctor's office. We, her caretaker, my brother or I, hand one of the two microphones to the doctor. He clips it onto his lapel, looks at it funny, saying, is this being recorded? No, it's just, you're talking directly to my mom's ear." goes, Can you hear me? She's like, yes. So it, it opens up her world for social activities. When she goes to do exercises at her community jogging center, she, she can hear what the person's saying. She hears what her friends are saying next to her. She just hands the microphone to whoever needs to speak to her. And so for, you know, around $200, we have an auxiliary system that supplements her hearing aids, and it just works so wonderful. Wow. And, I, and everyone who we share that with, everyone who sees it goes, this is a great idea. you in the hospital or whatever. Everyone can talk to Brian, you. Brian,
2: that's incredible, and what a thoughtful sign. That's Brian in Redondo Beach. Thank you so much for sharing. it. We have so many responses right now. I don't think I can get to them all, but Paul in Highland Park, Uh, emailed us. He is a musician, a college professor. He lost his hearing due to loud music. Now he always tells his classes that he wears hearing aids. It's due to damage from being in loud environments. So they should take care of their hearing health. Uh, I want to come before we close back to Marquita Merkison, Associate Director of Audiology Practices with the American Speech Language Hearing Association, because there are a lot of hurdles to people getting hearing aids. Cost is a big one. Then there's the social side of things as well. When it comes to getting around the costs, I don't believe that Medicare uh, even covers them. Is there any sort of help available for people? Is there any way for people who who might need this, but they're looking at that big four-figure bill, uh, any way that they can find some help? And I will say, Marquita, I only have about 30 seconds left, but if you can share, please.
7: I would say the best way to get around that cost is first to investigate how well you're hearing. You do have, um, in the last year, we have availability of OTCs, which will certainly help um, with that cost and accessibility. Um, and but before you know if you can wear an OTC device, you wanna see how you're hearing. And if you log on to asha.org and look for a hearing screener, you can get your hearing screen at the comfort of your living room. Um, and just in time for a World Hearing Day, which is on March 3rd, um, so we can all work together as far as prioritizing our hearing health and making it affordable and accessible for
2: everyone. Marquita Murkison, thank you so much. I'm Austin Cross. This is Air Talk on a Friday. Have a great weekend.
9: It's Film Week on L.A.S. 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. We are just hours away from the 22nd Annual Film Week Academy Awards preview at the Orpheum Theater in downtown Los Angeles, be there Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock. We'll have all 11 of our critics on stage at the beautiful historic venue. We'll see clips from all the Oscar nominated films. It'll be a great chance to hear the critics go at it because they're prepping, already hearing what they're saying about the nominees, not just for Best Picture, but the acting categories, the screenwriting categories. You're going to hear them go at it that Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock at the Orpheum Theatre downtown. Tickets are available. They're going fast, but you can get them even in these final hours by going to alais.com slash events. That's alais.com slash events. We sure hope to see you there. This week, I'm joined by critics Leo Lowenstein and Tim Cogshell to talk about Dune Part 2, uh, which is in wide release uh, starting uh, on Friday. Tim, what
10: did you think of Dune Part 2? Well, this is very, very, very- Very good. This is an excellent film. Picks up right where the first film leaves off, right? Uh, the At issue, uh, the House of Atreides, uh, So our Paul Atreides, he has to uh, avenge his house, his family slaughtered in that first movie. While at the same time he's dealing with these premonitions that he has about what will happen if he assumes the mantle, the messianic mantle that these people, the freemen, would like him to assume. Billions and billions will die. He has these visions about this. Zendaya, uh, one of these freemen, who will become his, his significant other, uh, doesn't believe in any of this stuff, and, uh, and doesn't really believe in him, and that context but wants to support him all of this stuff is the stuff of frank herbert's doom fantastic wonderful this film is as different from that first film as alien was from aliens all the same stuff totally different genre this film is an action war film just like aliens was not a mystery thriller yeah. aliens was an action army war that's what this movie is oh the, the, the narrative we're going to deal with all of that but this is a big spectacle film twice as fast as the other film even though it's a little bit longer than the other film the special effects three just huge huge he uh, what denny has done is he's built this on an arc that makes total and complete sense. It draws you into all of this, um, uh, so all of that is fantastic. But you know what else you have in this film? And again, this has to do with Denis Villeneuve's adaptation of this script, right? Uh, that that uh, that David Lynch film, nineteen eighty four. David famously said that he never read those books, which was obvious. <laughs> he plainly, hey, I had not read those books. Then he read the books. You can tell that he read the books. He knows what these movies, what the book was actually about anyway, the first one anyhow. And he's and he's uh brought all, he's restored all of that to the And these
9: a sequel a book that he wrote later is sort of further explaining the what the character yeah, yeah. Uh, of Paul is represents. Oh, that messing out. And he said that he he brought that into this. It, it is
10: absolutely in this book. It's interesting because for for one thing, uh, that David Lynch film, or for that matter, all those films that were made by those other books, by his son, by Brian Herbert, I think is his name. None of the, all of those films were full of, frankly, a whole lot of British people. This film has a lot of brown people in it saying those Arabic words correctly. Uh, uh, and all of that information is... is, is now. Frank Herbert, who had been a journalist before he started writing these books in the 60s, when he was writing these books in the 60s, sure, he was writing about all of that historic messianic stuff, all of that stuff. But he was also writing about the real world of the 60s, the 50s for that matter, uh, uh, the Algerians pushing the French out of Algeria, the things that were going on. All of that is in that 1965 book. That's what he's writing about in real time. Now, much of that was misinterpreted at the time. People... (laughs) People really thought that Paul Atreides represented Jesus. He doesn't. Paul Atreides is not Jesus. not Mohammed. He's not any of those things. In the, but he, which is why he wrote that second book, by the way, to sort of dissuade people from a lot of these notions. What is in that book, and, and, and because of the way Denny has constructed the script, are the present sort of issues of the day. That day, Algeria, Mali, and all those places, and today. That's in this movie. When you watch these movies today... You can think about things happening in the world today. And that's really what a big, exciting, excellently made action. Yes, they are. Watch these movies with an eye toward history, not just ancient history from 2,000 years ago, but contemporary history of the day and contemporary history of today. The Thought-Provoking
9: Dune, Part 2, written uh, by Denis Villeneuve and John Spates. Uh, Denis Villeneuve, the director of the film, starring Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya, along with Rebecca Ferguson, Josh Brolin, Austin Butler, Florence Pugh, and more. It's rated PG-13 in wide release. Problemista is a comedic drama starring Julio Torres, Tilda Swinton, and RZA. It's written and directed by julio torres
11: leo i loved problemista i think it is one of the one of the so far one of the best films of this year and it is uh directorial debut of julio torres and it's it's really just it, it it's it poises him as someone to watch for he is absolutely incredibly talented so in this film torres plays uh, an El Salvadorian immigrant who comes to the U.S. Uh, hoping to make it as a toy designer. He's got all these crazy ideas about toy design, and uh, he, he his goal is to work for Hasbro. Well, once he gets here, he finds that he if he doesn't have a sponsor, he's not going to be able to stay, and so on and so forth. He gets his first job, is in a cryogenic factory. Uh, he Pretty soon after that gets fired, but he lands a job with Tilda Swinton, who is the widow of the dead artist that he was assigned to monitor, but managed to mess up that job by Mm -hmm. unplugging the freezer. (laughs) Um, Tilda Swinton comes into this frame, like like a, a train on fire, she is Miranda Priestley hyped up to the nth degree. She is just she is full of fury and and humor and and dark venom, um, and somehow this very mild mannered. Alejandro, played by Torres, is is he he sees her. He's like, you know what? I can work with that. He can I, he can sort of humanize her maybe a little bit, and she can sort of make him a little tougher. So it's a coming of age story. It's visually and narratively inventive, with touches of Wes Anderson, almost a little bit of Terry Gilliam. There's visual commentary, beautiful, stunning, kind of clever production design commentary on the the. In, Complicated labyrinth of the Im- immigrants process, you know, um, which is shown through it through an hourglass with with the sands of time dripping out, and, and a complicated maze that he has to navigate. Um, it's it's a coming of age story. It's how hard it is to to exist in New York. How hard it is to find yourself. How hard it is to find your way. He also comes out as he comes of age. So it's really so funny, so well done. It's a black comedy. It's absolutely delightful, and a very promising talent in Julio Torres, who was, by the way, a writer on Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm. known for for, uh, among other things... Uh, lots of uh,
10: spookies uh, and all. Of yeah, lots spookies. Go Lael? ahead.
11: Take it, Tim.
9: Yeah. <laughs> Problo- by, let me just say, Problemista is the film we're talking about. Problemista. And, and Torres will be with us next week oh, on Film Week talking about the movie. Yeah,
10: call, him, call me when he's on the show. I want to talk to this kid. Me too. Look, uh, uh, this very good actor he is. Excellent writer. These the jokes and these little circular jokes that he writes. Tilda Swinton, of course, is in wacky mode doing all this. Going on. This kid directs like he's a Saturday Night Live. Uh, and, 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 and this feels like a bunch of directorially, I want him to get better. Okay. This is this that this, we, we need we need to hone our chops, dude. It's uh, his
11: first film. I know,
10: and I'm I, look. I love you, kid. I love <laughs> you. I'm telling you, call me. I'm going to talk to him. We, we we need to sharpen this all up. But he's a wonderful actor and a really smart smart writer. There's so
11: much vulnerability and in, it, in, it's, in it's him.
10: just so beautiful. Better directing skills are what we need here. That's but, all. But,
11: but but Tim, he directed that great performance out of Tilda Swinton. That wasn't just all Tilda Swinton doing it on her own. I mean, come Wouldn't
10: on. Wouldn't it though? Uh, Come on, She's give the man sw- some credit. <laughs> give him some credit. I, he's lovely. He wrote yeah. great stuff. for, the, And they and, and they play off each other. It really is cute. RZA is in this thing. He plays this artist who only paints eggs, <laughs> which is so funny. Like that. It's that's so absurd. The, the whole eggs 13 eggs. Yeah. And when he explains the mood of the eggs as you're looking at them, you're like, oh, yes, of course, that's a relaxing egg. Oh, that's an angry <laughs> you egg. Really it, you really have to see it to appreciate it. But it's, that, it is that's so all funny. That's it is all so
11: funny. It's endearing. It's just, it's a great, yeah, great film. Yeah,
9: Problemista is rated R, written and directed by Julio Torres, who stars, and he'll be with us actually two weeks uh, for our feature on Film Week. We continue with Leo and Tim on Spaceman, which is uh, an action drama sci-fi starring Adam Sandler, Carrie Mulligan, Paul Dano, and Isabella Rossellini. Uh, Johan Rank is the director. Lael, what'd you think of Spaceman?
11: Well, <clears throat> Uh, not didn't love it like I did. Problemista. Uh, interestingly, by the way, Isabella Rossellini was the narrator of Problemista, and so it's a there's some continuity here. She plays the director of a space agency in the Czech Republic, that is sending that has sent Adam Sandler on a mission to explore a strange purple cloud in somewhere in the universe out
10: around jupiter somewhere around say. jupiter yeah. yeah
11: and uh he has when we first meet him he has been on this mission for 189 days 6 months half a year and he's lonely he is the Some of the equipment, like the toilet, is malfunctioning a little bit on a spaceship. And it's got this sort of of old feel. Like, you know, it feels a little bit, you know, um, old school. And meanwhile, his wife, played by Carey Mulligan, is on Earth. And she is very pregnant. And she is having some second thoughts about their marriage. And she sort of decides, well, she decides this is the time when she's going to tell him that she's going to leave him. So the premise (laughs) is very the setup is really kind of interesting very intriguing it got me hooked with that um He's also someone who's been sort of disengaged from his life, from his wife, from, you know, his marriage a little bit. He, he loves her and he wants her to be there to support him. But he's just very much in his own head, his own job, his own business. And, um, you know, this this distance between this emotional distance is now manifested in the physical distance. And she's like, she says, I'm going to go. Meanwhile, the, the people who run the equivalent of NASA say, um, you know, we're not going to give you that message. We're not going to send him that message because we need him to be really focused. So there's some confusion, some, some drama around that. It gets really weird when uh, a, a giant tarantula shows up that's sort of an alien in the spaceship. I can't say too much. I'll let Tim take oh, it. It goes yeah, down. Voice, I thought it goes voice, downhill. Voice Meditative by Paul and Paul
10: Dano, this giant spider, this giant spider voiced by Paul Dano and you know questions as to whether or not this is all in his head because he's out there. Like, look, you decide to dump me when I'm three quarters of the way to Jupiter? Now? Now you're going to dump me? <laughs> Are you kidding? It, 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 look, this is adapted from this checkbook. And what they do do is a couple of interesting things, sort mm-hmm. of uh, scientifically. Uh, they solve the problem, for instance, of uh, of uh, delayed uh, time breaks in messaging by, by coming up with something called faster-than-light communication. Check so there's connect. No, uh, the check connect there. <laughs> and she has... Th- now... Paul uh, um, um, uh, 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 Adam is in is in introspective mode here. It's very quiet and thoughtful. Still a little bit funny,
9: but as you'd expect, someone living millions
10: of loneliness in terms of being alone, but loneliness also in, in in terms of how we are sometimes just when we are in the world. All of that is what this is about. It's a little too slow and a little too philosophical and introspective. Spider
11: for sort of psychoanalyzes him. It's weird. He has conversations with the spider. It gets a little. It's little as
10: if how. Like we're, yeah. were were you know less uh, mean and didn't want to kill you. Uh, but yeah. it, but but that's what's going on in this movie. kind of reminded me of Moon a little bit. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Long time it's, ago. Uh, Sam Rockwell, Zowie yeah. Bowie's movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this sort of thing. But it doesn't, didn't quite work for me.
11: Yeah, it didn't quite get there.
9: Sp- Spaceman is streaming on Netflix. It's rated R starring Adam Sandler, Carey Mulligan, and Paul Dano. Cabrini is a biographical drama focused on the life of Italian immigrant Francesca Cabrini, who arrived in New York City and advocated for children and for the poor in the city. The film stars Christiana Delana, John Lithgow in the cast as well. Alejandro Monteverde is the director. Tim, what did you think of Cabrini? Please get us started before we
10: break. I actually rather enjoyed this biopic from Angel Studios, which is a faith-based studio. The the director of this directed Sound of Freedom and a few other things, but this is a pretty faithful uh, biography of of, uh, Cabrini. Um, um, uh, who created the Missionary Sisters of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, a religious organization, came to the United States, sent here by the Pope uh, in 1889 with six of her sisters, and they built this organization in an extremely racist New York that treated Italian people about as badly as they treated I- uh, Irish people and black people. So she had to build all that. I had a cousin who lived in the Cabrini Green housing projects in Chicago. Very famous Very housing Very famous. Housing project. Project. When, when I was a kid, when, in the middle of 70s, you know, I never thought about it. That's her. If you roam around the United States, you will find things with the word Cabrini on them. That's her. Uh, she was beatified uh, and became one of the first, the first saint woman uh, beatified in the United States.
9: Cabrini uh, is the film, again, starring Cristiana Del Ana. Alejandro Monteverde, the director, Rod Barr, wrote the screenplay. It's rated rated PG 13 and uh, it goes into white release next Friday, March 8th. We'll hear what Lael has to say about it, but I do want to remind you that Lael and Tim and our other nine critics will all be up on stage this Sunday at 1 o'clock at the Orpheum Theatre, downtown LA for our 22nd Annual Film Week Academy Awards Preview you'll hear them go at it over all the top categories of the Oscars if you've never been there, make sure because this is a great year in movies that you don't miss it, I'm looking forward to this one as much as any of the ones we've done because of the range of terrific films and performances tickets at lais.com slash events back in a minute. It's Film Week on L.A. 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle with critics Tim Cogshell of all film Guide and synagogues.com. Leo Lowenstein, our uh, critic, joining us as well. We're going to hear from Leo about the biopic Cabrini on the life of Francesca Cabrini, Italian immigrant to New York City who had a huge impact on the lives of those living in poverty in that city and around the country. The film is directed by Alejandro Monteverde, rated P. 13 Leo, what did you think of Cabrini?
11: So I, you know, I I agree with Tim. I I liked the film. I thought it was really impressively done, beautifully mounted, sort of gorgeous to look at. Um, and her story is incredibly, incredibly impactful. I mean, the fact that she created not only this this orphanage in New York as an immigrant herself, but then a hospital and then a network of orphanages, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. I mean, it's really amazing that a woman could do that, you know, beginning in the, in the late 19th century. And everything that she came up against, including resistance from the archbishop, you know, even from the Vatican. You know, the way it handles it. And this is really my only objection with the film is that some of it felt very staged and very Hollywood. Like she has this she's like the one of the one of the senior archbishops in in the vatican says no we will not allow you to go from italy to to she wants originally to go to china to build an orphanage and he's like no we've got you've written us 11 times to ask us will it's it's no and it's no is final and then she says well then i must speak to his holiness i must speak to the pope so then she, she speaks to the pope played by giancarlo Gianini, by the way wonderful italian actor yeah. and um and somehow, you know, she manages to convince him with her charm that this is, that he must let her go. And over and over, this scene sort of plays out over and over and over again. She meets a very powerful man who says, what, a woman, you, you know, come on, you can't, and by the way, Italians are whatever, this and that. And, you know, but then she impresses them or pushes her way through, or at one point, she she gets a newspaper writer from the New York Times to, to write a story about it that, that actually changes things, shifts things in her direction. And, you know, I just thought, it's a really really impressive story her life which i then googled and you know was wanted to read every detail about was really interesting and actually she does bear a bit of a resemblance to the actress um cristiana dellana who plays her mm-hmm. but um but i thought it was just a little too sort of a little too staged, a little too cinematically. Over and them.
9: that's one of the problems I have in a lot of biopics. Right. Because one scene has to stand in for
11: so much. for
9: so much, And so you feel like it didn't really happen this way because, right. you know, it's, it's like a composite it's reduced, scene. It's like yeah. it's everything is just pushed yeah. into
11: that one scene. And, and so as a consequence, it feels a little bit disingenuine, which is too bad because as a whole, I thought the movie was, you know, worth mm. seeing.
4: Yeah.
9: We're talking about Cabrini-rated PG-13. It's in wide release starting next Friday, March 8th. The romantic thriller Love Lies Bleeding stars Kristen Stewart, Katie O'Brien, and Jenna Malone. Rose Glass directed and co-wrote the screenplay with Veronika uh, Tofilska. Tim, what did you think of Love Lies Bleeding?
10: Oh, I love this vicious little movie. This is just a mean, nasty, nasty, vicious little movie uh, that's As so the funny. As the title would indicate <laughs> So funny, but vicious and nasty. I, I'm nuts about Christian Stewart. He's great. Uh, Rose Glass, of course, did St. Maud too. This uh, little movie, uh, uh, which takes place in Mexico, you have um, uh, Christian Stewart, who works at this uh, workout facility, right? Uh, and she, she has his father, who's this guy played by Ed Harris. You just got to look him up. The, 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 the thing he's doing with his hair, it tells you everything you need to know about his character. Just look at his hair and you know who he is right away and then this this uh, woman this rising bodybuilder comes to town played by Katie O'Brien Katie we've been watching her for a long time she's in The Mandalorian uh, she's in, uh, she was in Black Lightning she's in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. she's been this and she's just this, this good solid actress she makes her bones in this movie as this bodybuilder uh, and there's this crime thing that's going on behind all of this as they start this affair and we get this this movie that reminds me of the early Cohen Brothers movies I mean Early corn, but blood simple. Yeah, early. blood simple. Yeah, um, those little mean movies. Even yeah. even farther The knife in the head. <laughs> yeah, you <got> all the <laughs> little. You yes. go, when they put the guy through the chipper. This movie gets that mean. Uh, while mean, while still just being so funny. Just just funny, 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 funny all the way through. It's a sharp. Pointed little movie, uh, and I think it makes a movie star out of our Katie O'Brien.
9: Love Lies Bleeding, the romantic thriller starring Kristen Stewart and Katie O'Brien, directed by Rose Glass. You can see it at the Los Feliz Theater uh, starting this Sunday, March 3rd, and then it expands to select theaters on March 15th. It's rated R. The music documentary, The Reverend, tells the story of Reverend Vince Anderson. The film is uh, directed by Nick Canfield. Leo, what would you think of The Reverend?
11: So it's a am very mixed on this documentary. It, it, it sort of starts out kind of eh, but then it gets significantly better halfway through. A little background, uh, Vince Anderson in the 90s was going to seminary school. I guess in the, in the 80s, he, he went to seminary school. He, he felt a calling to be a reverend to be a minister he dropped out and realized that what he really wanted to do is be a musician Um, but he created this band called the love choir and with this really sort of raspy voice and sort of like uh gnarly uh you know approach to music he, he has this sort of underground band and they play in clubs they play in churches and he's preaching the he's Preaching through his music. Let's say he's it's gospel, but he he himself doesn't claim to be always a reverend. He also never completed his seminary training. He didn't
10: even get through, he even get through right. the first month.
11: No, he did <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> but um but he's you know he's known as the Reverend. And um I thought the first sort of th- two-thirds of half the film was sort of eh it's sort of interesting. But you know, Quest Love is there. He talks about meeting him, even playing backup drums on the band in the band at one point. A lot of the musicians who are in the band say, you know, we're not even religious, we don't even believe. God, we don't, whatever, but it's, but he communicates, he connects with people through his music and through his, you know, sort of preaching, preaching through his music. But at about halfway through the film, he uses the or addresses the fact that he is a Christian and that Christianity has been abused. Um, in support of Trump In support of right wing The right wing movement And that he says there's another way Like you can still be connected to God And to your community But it doesn't mean you need to be connected to Trump Like you know let's think about this Let's think about the common good Let's think about you know what religion what, Really what the teachings of Christ were about Which is you know be kind do unto others And, and all of that And that's not that's not there's a, there's a riff that he goes on Where he's like you know Jesus said be kind to those who don't have I don't think Trump would really support that <laughs> you know anyway it's uh it it gets significantly better in the middle and i thought it was interesting the idea of being a religious influencer um, and how those those that power can be used for different things and i thought it was you know he's a really interesting interesting character
9: and are his songs explicitly religious or no, just the rap that he the, does sir, like leading into I mean, the song they're,
10: they're, he does he, a lot of gospel music
11: there's some gospel yeah, yeah. he yeah. talks about okay. god oh, yeah he's yeah. a holy roller
10: he rolls hard too boy he,
11: he does but he also says i somebody said that i don't believe in god i'm not going to listen to you and he says well i don't believe in god tuesday wednesday and thursday
10: <laughs> <laughs> but but it's it's it it, it is an interesting interesting. Interesting film that he makes these very specific... He's like Dr. John uh, meets Helen Rolfe with a little bit of a... I don't know, uh, who's that reverend that used to... With the curly hair? uh, Reverend Ike. uh, Oh, Reverend Ike, yeah. a little little, little tap of Reverend Ike in there. That's who he is.
9: Yeah, Reverend Ike, a powerhouse. The Reverend is unrated. It's streaming on the Criterion Channel. Amelia's Children, a Portuguese horror thriller that stars Bridget Lundy Payne and Corlodo uh, the film's written and directed by Gabriel Abrantes. Tim, what did you think of uh, Amelia's or Amelia's children? Well, it's a
10: sharp little horror movie. This is Cronenbergian, if I can coin a term. I think I might be coining the term yeah. right there, uh, I- if you will. Uh, this this, we, this this film opens with a young woman who seems to be having at least one of her two twins stolen from her. Very quick sequence. Fast forward to present day, we find this young man and his and his girlfriend, who is a doctor, and he he does one of those DNA tests and finds out that he. has... Has a twin brother. And they go to visit this twin brother in Portugal. The twin brother is also played by this actor who is a very good actor. He affects these two characters. One of them has a Portuguese accent. And and the guy that he's playing from New York doesn't have a Portuguese accent. So he's really killing this. Um, and we slip into this story that's going to explain what happened to that first baby and what's going on here. Um, the actress that plays his mother, we're gonna meet his mother, her face is disfigured in these in this horrible way. The makeup is is fascinating, and extraordinary. She so plays, so we see her in present day as well as back then. She's ridiculously beautiful. But when she's wrapped in this grotesque, and she it's just really 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 good. And like I said, it goes to those Cronenbergian places to yeah. make you real uncomfortable. As I was going to
9: say, it sounds kind of spine tingling oh, and
10: unsettling. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, that's exactly where we are.
9: We're talking about Amelia's Children from Portugal, the horror thriller written and directed by Gabriel Abrantes. It's unrated in English and Portuguese and subtitled. You can see it at Lemley's Glendale Theatre and it's available on demand. Megamind vs. the Doom Syndicate is an animated film, uh, and the uh, movie's directed by Eric Fogel, written by Alan Schoolcraft and Brent Simons. Megamind vs. the Doom Syndicate, Lael.
11: Yes. Well, <laughs> the last Megamind, the original Megamind, came out in 2010. It made $310 million worldwide, so it was quite a hit, over $100 million in the U.S. It had a dream cast with Will Ferrell in, this, in the title role, Tina Fey, Jonah Hill, Brad Pitt, it, a fantastic And it brought soundtrack. us the Minions, it, didn't it? We, well, hang on to that oh, for a okay. second, because there's right. an issue with that. It brought, it brought us the Concept of minions, yeah. but but not the actual oh the characters. That's a different okay. franchise. Oh, okay. Which is actually addressed in this one that they're no longer able to k- call a character minion <laughs> for copyright reasons. <laughs> 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 that's probably the funniest that's, thing about that's this. Very funny. I I did watch the original Me- Megamind a couple nights ago just to make sure that I w- you know was fresh on it. Um, it, it was pretty entertaining of what it is to be a villain and a hero and the need for an antagonist and that one megamind will Ferrell, uh who who dispatches with uh, another uh, villain pretty quickly he realizes that he needs to create a villain so he turns himself into a hero and then creates a villain to oppose him this has none of those voice actors. It supposedly happens only a couple days after the original, despite the fact that it's fourteen years fourteen years later in real life. And so, when he Megamind had a flip phone two days ago in the 2010 version, and this one suddenly everyone has smartphones, including a a ten year old girl who wants to be an influencer. Um, the, there's what no, a difference! The right, <laughs> right, exactly. There's no continuity. There, there's the characters also visually are rendered cheaply. I'm sure Charles would have a lot to say about that. Um, Overall, it feels like a cash grab with lame jokes that pander to kids. And it doesn't even feel like the same characters. By the way, if you're thinking, well, this sounds like they're trying to set it up for a TV series, you're right. They are. There's a TV series on Peacock, a new new Megamind that they're setting up. But if you like the first one, do yourself a favor and stay away from Mm. this Megamind.
9: So this is setting up, I guess, for the series Megamind Rules that uh, will be coming later. Mm. Uh, So the sequel to Megamind, Megamind and the Doom Syndicate, directed by Eric Fogel, and it's streaming on Peacock. Silver Haze is uh, a drama that stars Vicki Knight, Esme Reed Miles, and it's written directed by Sasha. Pollock, uh, what do you think of Silver Haze, Tim?
10: Uh, this is actually quite powerful, quite quite moving. Uh, v- Vicky Knight, keep her in mind. In, in, in this movie, we have a young woman named Frankie uh, who was was burned uh, o- over forty percent of her body when she was eight years old in this in this fire. She, right in, in the film, she's a nurse working, and she really has this need for either revenge or at least accountability uh, with the individual or individuals that that, that that caused this thing that happened fifteen years ago. And we watch this movie that's happening here and she falls in love uh, with one of her patients. She's a beloved figure at this hospital where she works. Now, this young woman, Vicki Knight. Uh, Vicki Knight is a young woman who, when she was eight years old, was burned over 80% of her body. Um, uh, and and she's in this film playing this character. She's been in several films, including another one of the Sarah's films. But this is a factual sort of thing. Mm-hmm. This film comes out of a workshop that she did with this director that incorporates these things that actually happened to her in her life into uh, you know, this narrative fiction story. So we we have her playing not exactly her, but a character who experienced this exact same thing that she experienced, and they sort of work their way out into this into this uh, fictional story. Um, she is a magnificent actress. She is not afraid of anything, literally anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and I I, I just I, and, and it's, this is a very good movie too. It's not just her. The film is good. They 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 manage to take this reality and to craft it into a film that's very identifiable. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I recommend this highly. You you really want to see this and and don't shy away from it. Um, yeah, don't shy away from
9: it. stars Vicky Knight and Esme Creed Miles. Charlotte Knight in the cast as well. Sasha Polak uh, was the writer-director uh, of the film Silver Haze. It's unrated, and you can see it at the Lumiere Cinema in Beverly Hills. And starting March 12th, it'll be available on demand. Just want to remind you that Lael and Tim will be with all of our other Film Week critics, everyone on stage, this Sunday One o'clock in the afternoon at the beautiful historic Orpheum Theater on Broadway in downtown Los Angeles. The 22nd year that we've done this. We began with a series at Hollywood's Egyptian Theater, moved to larger venues on Broadway. Now we're at the Orpheum for the second straight year, and we sure hope you're there in the audience. It's a beautiful place to see clips of your favorite films of the year. That's what we're going to do, and our critics are going to weigh in on all the different categories. And you'll hear plenty of back and forth because so many of these categories are really hotly contested, great performances, terrific screenplays, and dynamite films for us to debate. It may be hard to find a consensus, but it'll sure be fun to listen to all of it. Join us this Sunday at 1 o'clock at the Orpheum Theatre. Get your tickets now at com slash events. That's lais.com slash events. I sure look forward to seeing you Sunday. More to come on Film Week. We'll look at the best international films. It's Film Week on La 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Coming up Sunday is our 22nd Annual Film Week Academy Awards preview. One category because of time, we won't have a chance to do at the Orpheum Theatre is Best International Films. So we're going to do that right now, give you a little taste of what to expect this coming Sunday afternoon. One ticket's at com slash events. We have five nominees for Best International Feature. We begin with The Zone of Interest, which is also Oscar-nominated for Best Picture, starring uh, Sandra uh, Ullair, Christian Friedel also stars John Jonathan Glazer is the director, and it's adapted from Martin Amos' novel. Christy, your thoughts on the zone of interest and where it stacks up compared to the others in Best International Feature?
12: I mean, this is going to win. <laughs> There's really not much question to it. There are some excellent films in this category this year, but nothing can possibly compete with the extraordinary cinematic achievement that is a zone of interest um, in terms of its subject matter. It takes place at this seemingly genteel suburban home, which happens to be next door to Auschwitz, because it's the home of the Auschwitz commandant and his wife and their children, having a seemingly lovely life with their garden and their visitors. But just on the other side of that wall is the concentration camp. And what director Jonathan Glazer does here is in the most, like, almost imperceptible ways, He creates with the sound design this, this hum that's incessant and nagging, and you know exactly what's happening on the other side of that wall at all times. But there's such an austerity to it that that makes all of this that much more terrifying. Um, This was a big winner for us at our LA Film Critics Awards this past year. Um, It's up for Best Picture Director. It's sound design, you know, very deservedly is nominated for an Oscar. And I just can't imagine that this film will not win Best International Feature.
9: It's uh, from the UK. They submitted it. And the oddity is the film is all in German, but uh, the director, Jonathan Glazer is British. Lael?
11: Larry by the way that's that's such an interesting point because what we're seeing with the international film category is that it's becoming more and more truly international zone of interest was made by a british director submitted by england perfect days was was made by a japanese director submitted sorry by a german director vim vendors submitted from japan and then there are other omissions of course anatomy of a fall being one that that is a french film didn't make it but it's submitted for best picture but it didn't make Make it for the best international and film. And it's half in English. Right. And it's half so so it's it's just really interesting. We're seeing a lot of variation and shifting around in what it is to be an international film. And you're
9: at the mercy of of each country's film commission or whatever you call it, that whatever the body is that submits the movie.
11: That's exactly right. And that's probably why Anatomy of a Fall, despite having won the Palme Dor, at Cannes and and being getting a lot of acclaim throughout the year was not chosen by France because a, a good portion of it is in English. France instead chose Taste of Things, a lovely film, a culinary film, a period piece with Juliette Binoche, but it did not make the final five. So it's, it's just really interesting the way politics yeah. can play a role in all of this. Sometimes. And your
9: quick thought on the zone of interest, how I, it stacks up. You know up.
11: what? I respect it. I agree with Christy. I think it will win. Uh, it's it's very accomplished uh, sound design by Johnny Byrne was so good that we, in, in the L.A. Film Critics, we acknowledge that, along with the music by Micah Levy. Um, it's, it's it's a really strong, well-made film. Glazer has been making interesting films. He makes them about nine years apart. Birth is another film that he did. Um, and it's 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 worth acknowledging, certainly, the its gravitas, it's a very important subject matter, the fact that they're living next to Auschwitz, but living the seemingly idyllic, bucolic life when horrors utter horrors is, is going on next door which you don't see but only hear it's it's very thought-provoking
9: the zone of interest rated pg-13 also in the best international feature category is io capitano it's submitted by italy the italian film directed by matteo garone who also co-wrote the screenplay wade uh, what's this story about
13: you know what Lale raises a really really good point this is an incredibly international film and when they changed the name from foreign language category to best international film i was one of those who kind of snickered because it felt like a, a distinction without a difference but all of these films this year really are incredibly international and it's given me pause i've kind of come around on that four of these nominees as Lale implied have directors working outside their native countries three of them outside their native language And three on an entirely different continent, and Io Capitano is the best of all of those. I am not typically a Matteo Garoni fan, but he just, he won me over here. Uh, It's a very simple story about two impoverished Senegalese teenagers who make this harrowing trek from their village across the Sahara toward Libya with the intent of crossing the, the Mediterranean and starting a new life in Italy. But Garoni doesn't bog you down in anything ideological about the migrant crisis between Africa and Europe he really burrows into these characters and in true Italian neorealist fashion, he has cast some non-actors and these kids are amazing. And you forget that you're watching a movie. You are on this trek with them and occasional kind of magical realist interludes just really bring you much further into their experience, into their emotions, into this unbelievable journey. And there are moments here which you you cannot believe were staged for the camera. It's really an incredible film.
10: Io Capitano, Tim. Yeah, yeah, neorealism indeed. De Sica would be proud of his uh, country mate here with this film. Um, uh, Several of these films take you to very dark places. This film, you experience uh, very dark things as we travel in this fairly episodic journey with these young men, the the, the things that happen to them. Um, But this film is intent on not leaving you in a dark place, and I deeply appreciate that. I appreciate that Italy allowed this film to be submitted on its part because the Italian folks as as a nation have been, oh, well, uh, they haven't been all of that accepting of of some of these immigrants. What I also love about this film is these boys, uh, they're looking for joy. They're looking for happiness. They're looking for a bigger life. They can work where they are. Uh, they're, They're not starving. They could stay where they are, but they want more. That's what drives them forth, and I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing. They're not cast as desperate. They're cast as desirous of a bigger life, and I love that about this movie.
9: Io Capitano from Italy. The film is unrated. Uh, we're talking about the Best International Feature Film Nominees, and uh, we're going to be talking about other major categories this Sunday, 1 o'clock, at the Historic Orpheum Theater downtown Los Angeles. Please join us. We'll go category by category. Even if members of our audience vote via applause. Get your tickets now at elais.com slash events. From Germany, The Teacher's Lounge, directed by Ilker Chatok, uh, the screenplay written by Johann. Anis Dunker and Chattok. It's rated PG-13. Lael, The Teacher's Lounge.
11: I think this is an extraordinary film. The Teacher's Lounge is a taut and dramatic psychosocial thriller. It stars a wonderful actress, Leonie Bienisch, as a new uh, hire in a German school. She's a new teacher. with The school itself has a zero-tolerance policy towards anything theft, uh, bad behavior, and what is thought to be a stealing incident in the school. Something has been stolen. begins as like an interrogation. Where kids are brought up, almost reminiscent of the SS, you know, in, in um, East Germany, um, they're frisking and accusations are sort of being flung around. And meanwhile, the teacher herself is very, is really very optimistic, idealistic. She's trying to keep the peace. Well, one day she discovers that actually her wallet has been stolen out of her coat in the in the teachers' lounge. But she has decided to keep her uh, her computer camera on, so she thinks she can catch the thief. Well, she may or may not be able to catch the thief because she only sees part of the thief going in to catch her wallet. So it's really quite an interesting story in terms of like what we believe, suspicions, accusations, mistrust. It also touches on even racism and racial racial profiling. I should add the director – um, Ilker Çetak is Turkish-born, he's Turkish-German, and so um, there are many, many Turkish people in Germany, and there, this is actually part of um, what's dealt with there. It touches on racial profiling, xenophobia, um, the whole question of jumping to uh, judgments without proof, um, and even you know the idea of uh, the, the culture of the school is, essentially stands in as a microcosm for society. I thought it, it does a tremendously good job also pointing out the, the problems with the role of media, with finger-pointing, and also... Of this. It's brilliantly constructed. There's not an extraneous or superfluous word in the script. It's so taut. The performances are so good. All of the crafts are at the top of their game. Um, this is really the film you for right now. Morning. I love this you film. I, I hope everybody yeah, sees the it. The enthusiasm's an coming film. through the microphone. Great, score, and the great speaker. score, also.
9: The teacher's lounge rated PG 13. We'll hear if Wade shares that enthusiasm. When we come back, we're talking about the best international feature film nominees to be given out at this week's. Oscars or next week's Oscars. This week it's the 22nd annual Film Week Academy Awards preview at the Orpheum Theater this Sunday afternoon at one o'clock. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. Back in a minute. It's Film Week on LA, 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by critics Christy Lemire, Wade Major, Leah Lowenstein, and Tim Cogshell, all four of them weighing in on the best international feature nominees for this year's Oscar. We're talking about The Teacher's Lounge, submitted by Germany, one of the five nominees. The film is directed and co-written by Ilker Chatok. Uh, Leonie Benish is the star of the film. Wade, what did you think?
13: Yeah, it's terrific, everything that Lael just said. And, and you know, the, the cascading series of events, the way this all kind of snowballs out of hand, relies on a series of contrivances, which would normally be kind of unacceptable. But this isn't about the education system. Like Lael said, this is a microcosm of society. And so it's really a very much a, a kind of metaphorical or allegorical commentary on how easy it is for something as orderly as a school or as orderly as what we think of as civilized society to just come apart at the seams once you introduce a little bit of doubt, a little bit of superstition, a little bit of rumor, and all of these things just just it it frays and the seams just completely disintegrate. And the way it's put together is, is like Hitchcockian in the, in the degree of tension and that music, it's a simple score, but it just burrows under your skin (laughs) and every hair just stands on edge and you cannot believe the tension that is sustained from beginning to end. It's really extraordinary. It's, I mean, once it gets going, it is just tense and tense and tense and it gets more and more and it turns the screws.
9: Uh, Leone Beanish stars in the film. It's rated PG-13, The Teacher's Lounge, submitted by Germany. Japan's submission, as was mentioned earlier by Lale, is directed by a German, Wim Wenders. The film's drawing Koji Yakusho, Perfect
10: Days, Tim. I, I love this film. I think this this is my favorite of all yeah, of these I films that, that are chosen here. This film finds the exact right balance. Perfect Days. Uh, uh, this 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 guy who cleans toilets for a living. His perfect days are not perfect. They consist of some pain and some sorrow, which is just beautiful. The movie doesn't ignore the existence of pain and sorrow. It wraps it into this character who insists on finding a balance in his life. Uh, he, he works towards to, He has this goofy kid that works with him who's just terrible at the job, doesn't, doesn't want to do it. Who's oh, funny. Though. He's just absolutely hysterical. He has this niece who runs away from home and, and comes to live with him, which is interesting to me because I had the exact same thing sort of happen to me. And... And he learns from her while teaching her the kind of patience and the kind of understanding that he has come to, to build in this life. He has this woman that that, uh, that, uh, that runs his shop that he goes to where he eats and things like that. And there, there might be something going on there. But, you know, all of that is in this film. Uh, it's just lovely. The last scene of this movie, which is on this character's face as he goes from joy to sadness to joy. To sadness as he drives.
9: You know what? It's an incredible it's ending, t- and his performance is just yeah. beautiful, just
10: mesmerizing. So this is my favorite film of them all. Them, <laughs> directing, uh, who who just has a particular love of Japan and the Japanese people, and 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 a sort of way of being that you do not find here in the United States of America mm-hmm. that you can find. In Japan, which they, I think is fascinating. They
9: tried to hire him to do just sort of a, a, a film about the beautiful restrooms in Japan. And he came up with this idea <laughs> of doing a whole, you know, dramatic movie in this way. Christy, what did you think of Perfect Days?
12: I love this, too, and it's a really necessary palate cleanser in a lineup of films that, like, we keep using the word harrowing to describe these movies. Yeah. This is, like, lovely and gentle, and it could have been so mawkish and so feel-good and sentimental and, like, oh, I love the simple things in life, but it's way more emotionally profound than that, and so much of that has to do with Koji Yakusho's performance. It is so understated, so human, and this the rhythms of his daily life are kind of envious. I mean, he he cleans toilets and they're all architecturally fascinating. If you didn't already know, you're going to learn a ton about how cool the to- public toilets are in Tokyo. Um, but, you know, he goes to his usual bar afterward to, to get a glass of water. And the, the gentleman who owns the place says, for a hard day's work. And like, they know him there and they know him at the bookstore and they know him at the sushi place. And he rides his bike around town on his days off and takes pictures and he collects all these photos of Simple things like the way that the shadow of the leaves, you know, pass across the ground as the sun goes through them. Like, it's a really great message about how you can have a life that is simple and joyful and have work that is simple and provide you with everything you need. Um, yeah, I really, really love this. And the use of music is really cool. Like all the, the songs that he plays in his van. Yeah. <laughs> Are of an era, and it it sort of strikes a great vibe, like a good, easygoing vibe as to what his day in and day out are like. So this is a wonderful film.
9: Perfect Days from Japan. It's in Japanese with English subtitles, rated PG, Perfect Days. And the final one of the five international feature nominees is Society of the Snow, based on the true story of the 1972 Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 that crashed in the Andes. J.A. Bayona is the director and co-screenwriter. Wade, Society of the Snow, submitted by Spain.
13: Yeah, here we go. You know, Bayona is Spanish, but this is based on a Uruguayan novel by a Uruguayan novelist. And it all takes place in Uruguay and the Andes. So working across continents again, although in his in his native language, Bayona, of course, is a, you know, well known in Hollywood, the impossible, the orphanage. I mean, he's you know, he knows how to make big movies Hollywood style. But he's doing a foreign language movie here, and it contrasts to the way that this was told the first time in 1993 when Frank Marshall made it as Alive, based on a different novel, based on a, on a British no- or a, br- a British telling of the story. And it's exactly the same story. If you've seen the two films, you, you you find it really intriguing. There's a Hollywood veneer and a sheen to the way that Frank Marshall did it. And you get lost in, in the reality of the incident when Bayona tells it. And the, the staging of the crash itself is astounding. It is, it, you don't feel any CGI. They shot this on a soundstage. They recreated it to in meticulously. So it really feels as though you are right there in this horrible moment. Everybody now knows it kind of goes to a very dark place. So what Christy was saying about harrowing, this is ultra harrowing. It is not necessarily a pleasant film. But it is an amazing recreation uh, that feels utterly authentic. And it's a very, very impressive piece of filmmaking.
9: Society of the Snow. It's in Spanish with English subtitles. Christy.
12: So tense. So well made. This is a film that taught me that my son's claustrophobic because he had to keep getting up and like walking around the room (laughs) when we watched it. Because there are some scenes of avalanches where like they think they're gonna make their way out and they're gonna be okay. And then a wall of snow comes in and it packs them in again. And my son was like, ah. (laughs) So just word of the wise, FYI, if this kind of thing bothers you. But that really speaks to how visceral the filmmaking is and how intimate. And the way in which Bayona depicts, as Wade said, not just the crash itself, which is thrilling and terrifying, but also the depiction of the, the, the dead, how you see their names appear on the screen is adds a little bit of heartbreak with each new name, just the way that he displays them. Um, and you get into the process, the nuts and bolts of how do they try to survive? What would you do in that situation? How would you try to survive? It definitely puts you inside of their head, but the word society is crucial here. They are looking out for each other they are doing the best they can as a team and you learn just enough about each person to differentiate certain characters and oh yeah that was the guy at lunch and that was the guy who hugged his parents goodbye uh, But the the key here is that they are a team trying to Mm. help each other. It's really, really well made.
9: Society of the Snow, from Spain, directed and co-written by J.A. Bayona. It's rated R. I want to thank our Film Week critics for joining us. They are Tim Cogshell, Leo Lowenstein, Christy Lemire, and Wade Major, all of them with us. They will be joined by their colleagues. There will be seven more of them on stage at the Orpheum Theater, beautiful venue in downtown Los Angeles. Don't miss us. Join us this Sunday afternoon, 1 o'clock. Get your tickets at LAist.com slash events. Please join us. 22nd Annual Film Week Academy Awards Preview. Have a wonderful
7: weekend. The Las Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can
11: win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism.